Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Kid Kong at the Movies. I am once again your host, Kid Kong. I am joined today by Cal the Kaiju Guy. What's up, everybody? And our frequent collaborator, Ian. Hello. Now, this is a try-this-again moment. It's a redo, redo. <laughs> redo, redo. That's we're, a good way to word it. We're back and we're pissed off. Yes. You see, we had previously recorded this episode over the weekend. It was an hour 45 minutes long. We were both very, very pleased with it. Set it to update, everything, launch, great. I get a message this morning from Cal asking, hey, are you at work? Yes, I am. He sends me a screenshot. The episode was virtually unlistenable. Yeah, yeah um, uh, one, one of my listeners over on the uh, the Kaiju cast, um, like he, he reached out to me. He, he's one of the guys that uh, I talk with a pretty good bit and, he reached out to me and was like, "Hey, uh, I don't know if y'all had like some bad technical difficulties or whatever." And he he explained it to me, and so I was kind of like, "Ah, you know," I told him I was like, "It could be on your end because very early on, whenever I we started this podcast, like um, there was an issue on Kid Kong's phone to where he could only listen to half of one of my episodes, but literally everyone else that I checked in with is like, "No, your episode's fine." So I was like, maybe it's on your end. Let's cross our fingers and hope so. And no, I, uh, I, I hit play and the, the problem started immediately. And I was like, okay, yeah. yeah it was this a very issue. loud, high-pitched squealing whine, followed by a series of beeps. And then my voice would pick up again. And then this would repeat until about seven minutes in. And then just dead air. And it only had 37 minutes of it. So we lost quite a bit. So I was, uh, I was not pleased about that this morning. But I would like to extend a very heartfelt thank you to Robert. How do you pronounce his last name? I'm sorry. Delaloy. Delaloy, thank you so much for reaching out to Cal to let him know that this happened. Um, I, I really, truly do appreciate that. I had about two dozen of y'all listen to the episode or try to listen to the episode. And I, I'm sincerely sorry about that. And I hope you guys will tune back in to listen to the actual finished product. So, And on, on a somewhat related note... If you guys ever encounter any other technical difficulties, please be sure and reach out to one of us so that we can correct and move forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. So with that being said, without further ado, let's get back into this. We are talking, of course, today about predominantly Halloween 1978, but we will talk about the rest of the movies in the series as well. I'm not going to give you all exactly an update right this second as to what my hiatus was. Because I did actually address that in the update, letting y'all know about what happened tonight. So, just uh, needless to say, I'm back. This will be a bi-weekly show for the foreseeable future. Halloween was directed, written, and produced by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. Now, John Carpenter, of course, amongst many other things that he has directed, he did the original Assault on Precinct 13, The Fog, The Thing, which will be a episode in January. I know Ian's very excited oh, yeah. about that one. Uh, Escape from New York, They Live, which is yeah. my personal favorite John Carpenter film, Big Trouble in Little China, and a host of others. Deborah Hill, who passed away in 2005, was a frequent collaborator with John Carpenter and wrote quite a few of his movies along with him. And again, she produced this film. It was made on a budget of between three hundred and three hundred twenty-five thousand and pulled in between sixty and seventy million dollars at the box office. Released on October twenty-fifth. It became one of the most successful and profitable independent films of all time. I erroneously stated in the first time we recorded this that I believed it to be the most successful until Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles took its place in 1990. However, 
I believe Cal corrected me on that. What was it that was actually... I believe, statistically speaking, that uh, the Road Warrior, otherwise known as Mad Max 2, at one point in time yes. held the record for highest grossing independent film. And it did come out after this film. But, I mean, that may not have been counting it just because it was a foreign film. Right. Maybe what you looked up was just talking about American-made films. That very well could be. Stuff. I don't know, but I know that Road Warrior had the... Uh, the record for a while. Yeah. Side note, I want to say the most profitable independent film of all time right now may be The Blair Witch Project. Blair Witch took the record from Teenage Mutant yeah. Ninja Turtles. It has since been surpassed, but I cannot for the life of me remember off the top of my head what took its place. Um, Cal's pulling out his handy dandy <laughs> phone. Hey, you remember how our teachers used to say you're not going to have calculators with you wherever you go and you're not going to be able to look things up wherever you go? Well, turns out they were wrong. <laughs> we sure showed them, didn't yes, we? Yes, we did. <laughs> Halloween is considered to be one of the greatest and most influential horror films ever made. In 2006, it was selected for preservation in the Library of Congress. This movie spawned a franchise which consisted of, at the moment, 12 movies, the 13th about to be released, Multiple different timelines and continuities, and we will discuss that as well, as well, as well as there being video games, novels, comics, all sorts of things that have been released. I'm still looking. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of he perched in such a way that I thought, oh, he must already have it. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm looking through this uh, list. Oh, actually, huh? I don't know about this. Well, according to this article that I'm looking at, Passion of the Christ is apparently considered to be an independent film. If so, that's because Mel Gibson yeah. uh, produced yeah. that. And he's not part of any production. Well, movie, so then, right. then it is considered to be, according to this article that I'm looking at in particular, the highest grossing independent film of all time. Hey, good on you, Jesus. Anyway, the cast of this film includes, as Dr. Sam Loomis, Donald Pleasance, who passed in 1995. Donald Pleasance had a very long career throughout Hollywood, theatrical productions. He was a Shakespearean actor. Some of the movies that he appeared in include 1984, The Great Escape, You Only Live Twice, Escape to Witch Mountain, the 1979 Dracula, and a whole host of others. And he got top billing on this film. Yes, he did. Laurie Strode was played by Jamie Lee Curtis. Of course, Jamie Lee Curtis, in addition to being a television actress when this show first, or this movie first came out, rather, was in The Fog, A Fish Called Wanda, Blue Steel, My Girl, Trading Places, Freaky Friday, True, Crime, uh, True Lies, and many, many more. As a quick side note on this, we touched on this last time, that unfortunately it was not edited. I have, to this point in my life, not seen Trading Places, nor True Lies. Jamie Lee Curtis bears an extremely strong resemblance to my mother. She appears either topless or in lingerie in both of those films. I have no desire to see that woman like that because of the resemblance. So, moving right along. No, no comment. Yeah, no. Crickets. <laughs> <laughs> the character Michael oh, Myers, Lord. which was billed in the, in the credits as The Shape, was played by Nick Castle. Nick Castle, while he has returned for the newer films in the franchise, is actually most well known as a director. He directed Major Payne. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The character of Linda Vanderclock was played by PJ Souls. PJ Souls, of course, has been in Breaking Away, Private Benjamin. She was in Stripes. I love that movie. She was in Jawbreaker, The Devil's Rejects. Also love that movie. And the 2006 Tooth Fairy. Annie Brackett, the daughter of character Sheriff Lee Brackett, was played by Nancy Keys. Nancy Keys' entire filmography consists of John Carpenter films. So that's that's all she's done. That's not a bad thing. 
Speaking of Sheriff Lee Brackett, he was played by Charles Cyphers, who, while he's appeared in Major League, he's also appeared in Grizzly 2, The Predator. And Cal had actually something pretty interesting to say about that film last time we recorded this. Okay, so, um, yeah. Grizzly 2 is a sequel. It's called Grizzly 2 The Revenge, I believe is what it's called. And it is a sequel to a film called Grizzly, which was a ripoff of Jaws. Because whenever mm. Jaws came out in the late 70s, there was a whole slew of creature features that came out that was trying to capitalize on its popularity. You had an Australian film called Great White, which was banned here in the States for a very long yes. time. I think it's just recently gotten to where you can get it on like some streaming services, but for the longest time it was only available on YouTube. Then there's uh, Piranha, which was probably the most successful of the Jaws ripoff films. There was Orca. Which I actually greatly enjoy Orca. I, I like Orca. That's <laughs> a pretty good movie. But there was also Grizzly, which there was also legal issues concerning Grizzly because Grizzly, as far as like the type of characters, mannerisms that some of the characters have, even plot points, it's basically Jaws script page for script page, but instead of being a shark in the water, it's a bear in the woods. And so, yeah. Yeah. It, um, <laughs> it didn't, um, yeah, it didn't. Didn't do well. It did not do well. I've seen it. Um, I did not share this yesterday, Chris, but you have uh, done an episode on Bark the Bear mm -hmm. that I was a part of. The grizzly that plays in the original grizzly is Bart's mother. No kidding. Yeah. She was not as friendly as Bart. <laughs> there had to be, they had to keep electric fences like in oh between my. the bear and the actors because they were like, okay, we're going to shoot this scene with this bear. And they're like, okay, like, is it, sa is it like nice? Is, is it, it safe? safe? And they're like, absolutely not. That's why there's electric <laughs> Do not get too close to the fence. That bear My will goodness, eat you. I wish y'all could have seen that because he had the cheesiest grin on his face with a, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. No, not safe at all. But anyway, back to Grizzly 2. So yeah, they made a sequel to it and it got buried. Because of legal issues and things like that with the original Grizzly and all of that stuff. But it just recently got to where it was being released on some streaming services. I have it currently on my Vudu. I purchased it the other day. And I've been meaning to watch it ever and, since you mentioned that. And um, there's some there's some big name actors in there that would have like... It would have been very early on in their career. And just one name in particular that I'm going to state. That he's one of like the the bigger characters in the film is George Clooney. So when he told me that, I was like, yeah, I'm watching the movie. It's, it's definitely a cheesy, horrible, terrible creature feature of a movie. But if you're into that kind of thing, like I am, you'll love it. The character, Lindsay Wallace, who was one of Laurie Strode's friends in the movie was played by Kyle Richards. Kyle Richards was also in the original Escape from Witch Mountain with Donald Pleasance. In addition to being in Concrete Cowboys, she was mostly a television actress. Finally, Tommy Doyle, the little boy that Laurie Strode was babysitting, was played by Brian Andrews. Now, Brian Andrews has been in The Great Santini and Three O'Clock High, but while Nick Castle and Jamie Lee Curtis would return to the franchise to reprise their roles, rather than try and track down Brian Andrews to play this role, they got Anthony Michael Hall to do it. I mean, I, I got nothing against Anthony Michael Hall, but... Um, if you're used to seeing him in things like The Breakfast Club and Sixteen Candles, it's going to be very odd seeing a much older, chubbier version of him 
going head to head with Michael Myers. Dude looks like he's sweating cheese at multiple points. And I'm not going to lie. Like enough time has passed where he looks like such a different person. Like unless you absolutely know like, oh, that's him. Yeah. You would you, never, you, you never. probably would not connect the dots that that's him. Like, wasn't that him in uh, uh, the dead zone? I, I, yeah, that's yeah. one of the few progress. Pro- yeah. uh, the few sources I could think of where you saw him in a more serious role as well. Also, uh, The Dark Knight. He well, had, yeah, he was yeah. in that, but he was kind of played for laughs in that. I mean, they strung him up. How many How many different people have wanted to string up newscasters by their feet? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, am I wrong? I've never had the desire to want to string up a newscaster by their feet, but hey, that's just me. Yeah, and actually, a lot of people don't realize this. Uh, there's a Dead Zone episode where a hydroelectric dam is creating a high-pitched whine that only the animals can hear, and it causes the animals to Kinda go like crazy. Kind of your episode did. Oh, oh do, do. <laughs> it causes the animals to go crazy, and they actually use Bart the Bear Jr. in a scene, and amongst other animals. He has never confirmed or denied this, but I firmly, firmly believe that James Patterson's book, Zoo, took its entire inspiration from this episode of The Dead Zone. And he probably figured, it's been 20 years since that came out. No one's going to notice. I mean, I've read Zoo. That's pretty doggone similar. Yes. So, yes, it is. But uh, also, James Patterson. I mean, nope, nope, nope. Nope, let's not, move on. Not going to say it. Not let's say move it. on. Let's move on. He, he get, seems like a litigious type of Get thing. out of that yeah. rabbit hole. Let's, uh, let's so, uh, get back to the movie. When it comes to the development of this film, the concept, the idea, everything that came from this, a producer and financier duo... Witnessed Assault on Precinct 13 at an Italian film festival. They loved it. They loved everything about it, from the direction to the art style and everything. And they wanted John Carpenter to make a film for them. They wanted him specifically to make a film about a psychotic killer that would stalk babysitters. John Carpenter was initially hesitant to do so, but finally agreed under the caveat that he be given full creative control and license of the characters that he created. He was also paid a flat fee of $10,000 to direct. Which ten thousand dollars when you uh, bump that up for inflation? You looked that up last time, isn't that like one hundred thirteen thousand something like that? Uh, it wasn't quite that much. It was like ninety ninety seven thousand like, something yeah, like that. Yeah, seven. It is an urban myth that this film was originally intended to be referred to as the Babysitter Murders. In many interviews that he has done, John Carpenter has stated on multiple occasions it was always meant to be taken place on and titled after Halloween. Like it, it, that that kind of concept, as crazy as it seemed, had not actually really been done with horror movies before. Like they had experimented with like Halloweenish themes, but to actually place a horror movie's direct timeline on Halloween, it hadn't been done on this kind of a scale before. Also, any similarities to Black Christmas, as suggested by the writer and director of Black Christmas, Bob Clark, have said to be coincidental. He has seen. He said, "I've seen Halloween. I loved Halloween. I love what John did." Maybe he was inspired a little bit by what I did, but as far as I'm concerned, the similarities are simply that it's a murderer on a holiday. Everything else, he's like, John deserves 100% credit for everything that him and Deborah did for this film. He, he he absolutely loved it. It took 10 days to write this film. That's it. And they decided that they wanted to use, again, they wanted to use Halloween and specifically the pagan holiday of Samhain as one of the main influences on this film. Now, for those of you listening at home, Samhain is spelled S-A-M-H-A-I-N. So you probably pronounced it as Samhain. That is not correct. It is technically pronounced Samhain. Loomis's description of the young Michael Myers that was in this film, it was in all the, the previews they had for it, everything, 
was taken almost verbatim from how John Carpenter felt when he visited an insane asylum and spoke to someone who was in jail for killing and eating his mother. He said that he had, he saw nothing behind the guy's eyes. The interaction was just, he's like, it's absolutely terrifying to do that. And as such, because of his experience with that and the other films that he made, virtually all of Dr. Loomis's dialogue was written directly by John Carpenter. Meanwhile, because Deborah Hill had worked as a babysitter during her teenage years, she wrote most of the dialogue for the female characters. They also chose to use their own backgrounds to influence the film. Like, for example, uh, Deborah Hill was raised in Haddonfield, New Jersey. Therefore, we got Haddonfield, Illinois. Uh, Several street names were taken directly from John Carpenter's hometown. And while this has never been outright confirmed, it is heavily implied through various interviews he has given that the name Laurie Strode is actually the name of an ex-girlfriend of John Carpenter. Michael Myers, the name itself, was named after a producer of a film uh, that worked with John Carpenter on Assault on Precinct 13. It contains a couple of different homages to Alfred Hitchcock as well, and this was done by design. For example, Tommy Doyle was named after a character from the film Rear Window. Dr. Loomis... So, the character... We ran into an issue with me trying to read this part off last time, so I'm going to try and get through it a little bit better because my notes were a little jostled at this point. The actress that played the woman on Psycho, Marion Crane, that character, that actress, is the mother of Jamie Lee Curtis in real life. Mm-hmm. You have Cal's trying. Janet Lee. Yes, yes. There we go. Cal is trying not to laugh because it took me a probably good two minutes to spit this out last time. Well, last time he was like the the character from Psycho. Mm, the character from the, uh, the character the character from Psycho was um Lee Look, Janet Curtis Lee Curtis. Oh, I'm gonna start over, and I'm like, please do. <laughs> you know, it has been two months, over two months, almost three months since I've recorded an episode. I'm understandably a little rusty, and I was a little nervous. I feel actually, I feel a lot better doing this time this time around than I did last week or last day, rather. You wouldn't know by that little exchange, but anyway, um, Michael's backstory. In order to get this character right, John Carpenter didn't want to pick any particular murderer or any particular historical figure to try and do this on. Like, for example, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Ed Gein. Ed Gein yeah. You know, he didn't want anything like that. So the idea here was that every small town in America has that haunted house or they have that one particular person that somebody knows that someone knows that someone knows that killed somebody. And, that, and that, the, gra- that, the that grave creepy ke- guy. The, yes. The gravekeeper even said something about that in the original film when they're trying to find uh, the grave and he tells Loomis, he's like, Every town has somebody like this, you know. You see, it's important to note right now that between Saturday when we initially recorded this episode and today, knowing that we were going to re-record, Cal actually went back and watched the movie for the first time in several years. It had been a while since I've seen it because it's one of those films that I love so much other than like little minor details. Like I, I remember a good deal from it. Yeah. And yeah, I had a pretty big busy week last week didn't really have time and I was like It'll be right. I'm, I'm familiar enough with the franchise to where I don't need to see any of the films to talk about this franchise but you know given the opportunity to do a re-record and I was like I've got about four hours to spare I'm, why not I'm gonna watch the movie <laughs> just so things are a little bit more fresh in my mind but <clears throat> the, the general idea was he wanted people who would go to see this film to feel like this is something that could have happened in their small town yeah. 
And to that effect, specifically more so than any other scene in the film, the ending scene. Look, I know I normally have a thing about spoilers on my show. This movie came out in 1978. If you haven't seen at it At this yet, point now, it's on you. It's on you. The ending scene when between Lori fighting back and then Loomis emptying the clip into this man and him falling and toppling out of sight, looking down and seeing his body, and then looking again and him being gone, that whole idea was meant to terrify the audience's imagination. They wanted the audience to keep guessing about what this was going on. Rather than think like, okay, what's going on? Or did they actually kill him? He wanted this to be like a, this is evil. That you are dealing with true evil. He did not want, and this is a very key thing to remember as this franchise goes on. He did not want audiences to think that this was a, oh, it was simply he was cursed by, or something to that effect. That is foreshadowing. That did not age well. Didn't age well at all. Due to the lower budget, they were kind of limited with the casting process they were able to do, which also led to lower payouts. For example, the, the character Dr. Sam Lewis, their first choice was Peter Cushing. He turned it down flat due to the budget. He's like, hey, you no, absolutely not. You guys, I will not do it for what you're wanting to pay. Christopher Lee also turned it down. However, he had stated for years after the fact that it was probably the biggest regret he had in his Hollywood career was turning down the role of Dr. Sam Loomis. We talked about it a little bit last time. I'm very fond of Christopher Lee. I think it would have been excellent if he would have done it. But at this point in time, so much time has gone by. Donald Pleasance's role and the way he played the character is too iconic to have truly pictured anybody else in that place. Although Malcolm McDowell did a damn good job with what he had. Malcolm McDowell did do great, but Donald Pleasance put his stamp upon it in such a way that even whenever Carpenter made uh, Prince of Darkness... Uh, Donald Pleasance is in it as a priest, but his name is never given. Yes. But fans refer to him as Father Loomis. Yes. Now, Donald Pleasance was the third choice, and he accepted this role not because of the money and not because of the movie itself, but because his daughter, who was a musician, was a tremendous fan of the score for Assault on Precinct 13 and said, you you have to work with this man because the, the music that he was able to do with that film, I would love to see what he's able to do with this. He accepted, was the highest paid actor for the movie, and was paid $20,000. Adjusted for inflation, that's about $117,000. That's where my confusion was there. Casting Laurie Strode was also a little bit uh, problematic. Uh, John Carpenter had stated that he had no idea who Jamie Lee Curtis was. She was a television actress at the time, and his exact words, I don't watch TV, who the hell watches TV now? This was the 70s when you think about the fact that now... Virtually every single TV channel now has a streaming service. Well, yeah, and also nowadays, you know, you've got like some of the biggest names in Hollywood that's walking away from doing movies to focus on ongoing like TV shows and, and limited series and whatnot. So, yeah, yes. like th- th- we are, it's it's a whole different ball game nowadays. Like it, this is definitely the age of like limited series, miniseries, and stuff like that. Yeah. The first choice for Laurie Strode was actually Ann Lockhart. She accepted, but had to back out after about a week due to scheduling conflicts with another film that she was making at the time. Ian is putting hand to chin. He's trying to think of what that would be. No, 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 no. Uh, is she related to June Lockhart? Yes, she is. Okay, okay. Now, Timmy's, Timmy's mother on Lassie, yeah. by the way. After hearing that Jamie Lee Curtis's mother was in Psycho, we made a little bit of a circle back to that point, John Carpenter decided, you know what? 
this would be great. This is going to be good for added publicity. Like we can advertise this as the daughter of the woman from Psycho. Like this is this it gave them that extra little oomph of yes, this is kind of a movie you're not really going to see a whole lot of publicity leading in this movie. That's going to give us something. I mean, let's be honest here. Why does anybody go watch Scott Eastwood movies? Because Clint Eastwood's because son. Clint Eastwood's yeah. son. Like, yeah. uh, you know, he's a good actor, don't get me wrong, but whenever he was first popping up before he was able to like put his own stamp on himself and all that kind of stuff, people would be like, man, who's that guy? He looks real familiar. Wait a minute. Eastwood? Oh, yeah, I'm going to check him out. <laughs> uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was paid $8,000 for filming for this role. She actually initially did not audition for Laurie Strode either. She initially auditioned for one of her friends because, in her exact words, the character of Laurie Strode and the way she is, that wasn't me in high school. I was the one who was sneaking out of the house. I was the one who was the popular cheerleader in class. I was never the quiet, bookish type, and it just didn't seem like it was her. But she relished the idea upon discussing it with others and realized, you know, this is going to be a chance for me to actually work as an actress this is going to be give me the chance to try and work this way and, and i can't really necessarily say that i blame her now remember how i said nancy keys who played sheriff brackett's daughter her entire filmography is nothing but john carpenter films well uh she dated an art director for Hollow for halloween this art director was a frequent collaborator with john carpenter so there, there might have been a bit of a connection there now, PJ Souls, her character was actually st- specifically written with that actress in mind. She was the only actress they had considered at that point. Now, Michael, there was an interesting casting with this. So, Nick Castle befriended John Carpenter when they were in college. After this film was over with, John is the one who helped him get his foot in the door with directing films, which is one of the reasons why he returned to Halloween, Halloween Kills, and soon to be Halloween Ends, was kind of as a way of paying this man back because. John Carpenter has made it clear that as far as he's concerned, with Halloween Ends, that's exactly what it is. Halloween Ends. He does not want to do anything with this franchise ever again. He's like, it's time for us to move on. This thing has been going for over 45 years almost. It is time to let go and do other things. Nick Castle, who started this with him, wants to end this with him. Now, there is a scene in the movie where we briefly see the adult Michael without a mask on. That man was Tony Moran, who was a struggling actor. He was paid $250 for his role, which, considering the amount of takes they took, amounted to $250. He was working about 30, 40 minutes to do it. Nick Castle was paid $25 per day to film as Michael Myers. And considering the shoot only lasted 20 days, and he was only used for about 12 of them, that's a steal on the end of the studio and a downright... (laughs) <laughs> highway robbery for Nick Castle. <laughs> yeah. Now, one wouldn't really necessarily argue that he kind of made it out on way, in his own way, anyway. Again, due to the low budget, this was given a four-week shoot, a grand total of 21 days oh, or, uh, throughout that four weeks. Carpenter, again, got paid $10,000 to film this, plus 10% of the profits of the film and its characters. That man made bank off this franchise. Yeah. <laughs> so, if I was him, I'd be like... So we're doing another reboot after Halloween ends, right, huh, boys? <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the wardrobe people, when told to try and find a mask for the ha- the character of Michael Myers, he went to a local Halloween or costume shop, rather. He boldly went. Yes, he did. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> and of all the masks, I looked into it a little bit more today when I was on my lunch because I'm like, let me get. There's got to be a little bit more information about this than I wrote down initially. 
Uh, while looking at all the different masks, he said that his eyes were drawn to the mask of James Tiberius Kirk, Captain Kirk from the original Star Trek, because this mask looked so empty and soulless that he was going to be able to do something with it. He widened out the eyes. He bleached the face white. And, like, I mean, there's roughly the same amount of plastic in those masks as there is in the actual William Shatner's face at this point. So, I mean, I'd, I'd be scared if I saw William Shatner coming at me out of the dark, too. I'm not going to lie. Like, have you ever seen those masks unaltered? Mm -hmm. Like, just in color and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff? I mean, still creepy. Oh, yeah. 100%. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. But the idea of giving it that white paint, considering a lot of the times that you're seeing him was at night, that starkness of it, the, the sheer terror that it would induce. Because people, honestly, people were easier to scare back in the 70s as well. Well, they, they wouldn't as like exposed to as much stuff as we are in a, true. nowadays. I mean, like I've talked about before how in the original Jaws, like it got to the point to where staff was having to hand people barf bags whenever mm -hmm. they were going in because of the amount of blood and gore. And I'm sitting there thinking that was back in the seventies. And I first watched Jaws whenever I was like five years old. And I'm like, that's the most awesome movie I've ever seen. Yeah. Never felt sick. Never felt. They had, just, they had ambulances on standby during the exorcist. It's, it's a different time. Yeah. Again, due to the lower budget, um, most of the cast actually wore their own clothes, which is why, amongst many other films that were made during this time period, the, the clothing in this film most accurately reflects the time period that it was in because that's the clothing from the time period. Jamie Lee Curtis could not have actually owned those like thigh-high socks that she was wearing. No, or, she did I not. Uh, I refuse to believe Her that. entire wardrobe <laughs> came from JCPenney for about $100 before the movie began those production. Are, those socks are terrible. I don't care what anybody says. Every, addition, every time I watch the movie and I see that part, I'm like... <laughs> I'm like in, in addition to all that, again, the lower budget, a crew is obviously helping out with the production of the movie. They help move everything. Well, the cast would also help out. They would help out move different things from one scene to the next. They'd make sure cars were moved. They'd make sure things were in play. At this point, in my initial breakdown of this episode, after I got done... Talking about this, the last thing I had said was that the car that Michael stole to get back to Haddonfield uh, was leased for two weeks, sold at an auction, and the guy who bought it at that auction let it sit in a barn for 30 years and become dilapidated, rusted out, and destroyed, in the words of Eldar, rusted out shitbox. Somebody bought it from them for about, I think, $120 and yep. completely restored it. And it now sits in a like exhibit for Halloween. At this point... I didn't have a whole lot of other notes about production because there wasn't a whole lot of notes left over from production. Cal had learned a few different things over the years, and he actually chipped in with it, going back to the cast and crew helping out. Okay, so just one of the little tidbits of information that I have to share is, you know, I don't know how many people are aware of it, but in order for a film to actually be considered to be a feature film and get like a theatrical release and all of that kind of stuff, it has to meet certain requirements, certain different rating requirements, so that like, it doesn't get uh, rated as like NC-17 and stuff like that. And one requirement that a lot of people don't think about is length. Mm -hmm. That's why like back in, if uh, if you're like us and you watch movies from like the 20s and the 30s and all that, you'll see that a lot of those movies are sometimes just barely over an hour. Sometimes they're less than an hour mm -hmm. because that was just the minimum length at that point in time. This film is roughly an hour and a half, give or take. They had to meet the requirement, and since it was such a low budget and they really couldn't do anything, it was an independent film, 
They were very limited with what they could do. Someone pretty much looked at it and was kind of like, we're not going to have enough content to fill the length. So I don't know who actually made the decision. It was probably Carpenter. It was actually Deborah Hill. I checked on Okay, that. so Deborah Hill. They pretty much decided, okay, well, a real easy way to create length for this movie is just do very long shots. And whenever I say long shots, I'm not talking about, you know, like landscape or something like that. I'm talking like the scene, the opening scene, whenever Michael is approaching the house, he's very slow to walk to the front door. Then he turns and he goes and he looks through the window. The lights go off. He looks multiple directions. He walks back to the front. Then he turns around, walks to the back door. Back door is wide open. He walks through. Why in the world the back door was wide open? I'll never know to this day. But he just walks right through. And it's a very long, drawn-out sequence. I know why the back door is open. It's a... Ha ha! Ha ha! One of the cameramen forgot to close it. Okay, then. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> but, uh, Sorry. I thought I thought that was a sexual joke you were making. No, no, no! I was, I, I, <laughs> no, no! I was thinking... The cameraman genuinely left it open. Because, because of what his sister <laughs> was doing up there... But, um, so, <laughs> so he goes, he goes through the back door. You see the brother coming downstairs. He lingers there for a little while. Like he gets the knife. He goes upstairs real slow. Like it, the whole thing is extremely drawn out. A lot of people might sit there and be like, oh, wow, that was brilliant. That was this, that was that to like make it more suspenseful and everything. It was 100% to pad the time. Mm -hmm. That's what that scene was for. And then moving forward throughout the movie, there were multiple shots where you would see Lori just walking down the street. Nothing's happening. There's just some creepy music that's playing. You do not see Michael or the shape as he was known at that point in time. You do not see him stalking her. You do not see anything else happening. It's just her walking down the street. And they did that enough times to where, like, after all those little shots like that just added up, it's basically like, dang, we've got, like, an extra 15, 20 minutes of uh of time here. We uh we made it. We hit the, uh, the minimum requirement. And another thing that they did was, and I'll use the opening scene as an example again, was whenever Michael was, like, going to be walking up the stairs or walking around the room, you see him kind of looking around and all of that, and if you see the can't like if he stops and he kind of looks at something for a little while or something like that, so that the guy with the camera would be able to have more room and he's not tripping over props and all of that, whenever he would stop and be like looking around, the cast and crew would actually very quietly like pick up couches and like slide them out of the way so that he could keep moving and not have to worry about. Like, you know, they would try to shoot it one way and he would stumble and you would hear his footsteps or something. And they're like, dude, this couch has got to go. Like, well, nope. we got to have something there. We can't just have it be a bare room. It got so, to the point where John Carpenter himself was helping them move various yeah. things. So it just got to the point where like, okay, we're going to see the furniture and stuff as you're walking. When you get there and it's out of the camera shot, we're just going to move it so that you can move around. And they did stuff like that. Uh, one thing, I actually had forgotten about this. This doesn't have anything to do with production. It's just something to where I was like, why in the world did that happen? Was in the opening scene, whenever he comes in, uh, startles his sister, starts stabbing her and all of that. Keep in mind that this entire scene is being played out as if it's through Michael's eyes. Yeah. Okay? So, 
there's a part where like he's he's zeroed in on her stabbing her but there's a part where he just randomly looks up and slightly like he looks to the right and slightly up to where you can see his hand like coming back and forth and i just thought to myself what kind of killer is like yeah. gonna be stabbing somebody well, is like i'm not even gonna lie so <laughs> what, is, what is it doing like the way you just described like an american that, psycho like <laughs> the way you just described that made me think of friggin seinfeld when they're talking about getting spit on by keith hernandez yeah back and to the left which of course yeah. i know my head moved to the right that's not important which of course is taken my, from my jfk left. yes you're left but yeah, that that's no, pretty, still you're right. That's anyway. That's just some uh, some little yes. That's just some little uh, tidbits of production that that I had to share. Uh, Ian, do you know anything off the top of your head that you would like to share? No. Okay then. All right. Again, it was a 20 day total schedule throughout a four week period of film. They did all the filming in California. And this was filmed in May. Do you have any idea how hard it is to find real pumpkins in May? Hmm. Very very difficult. Knowing this and knowing what the theme of the movie was, they actually began growing the pumpkins. Pumpkins grow fairly quickly. Yeah. So they were able to have several of them ready for this to go. They also had to have artificial leaves brought in. Uh, local neighborhoods were kind enough to dress their children up as Halloween ca characters and have them go trick-or-treating. And the cast or crew would actually ensure to give the kids candy and things like that. Kind of like, here, you guys are getting an extra Halloween kind of thing. That's awesome. Which, man. yeah, absolutely. Also, a lot of people who are unfamiliar with filming process, don't seem to realize that it's very rare for a film to be made completely in chronological order. And that's strictly because whether it's characters getting hurt as they're going throughout the film or people aging or people gaining weight, losing weight, whatever the case may be, well, it it's also, difficult to do that. It also depends on schedules because yes. one of the characters might only be available for three weeks and they're like, exactly. we have to shoot all of this guy's scenes first. And he may be in... The beginning of the movie, the middle of the movie, the end of the movie, so all his stuff will be done, and then whenever he walks away, it's like, all right, guys, way back to the very first scene. Exactly. You know, now, <laughs> due to this, uh, I was going to say real quick, something else to consider whenever films are shot in chronological order is, are there kids in the cast? Yes. Yes. Probably the most famous movie in that regard is the movie Boyhood, which was filmed entirely chronological in order over a 10-year period because the same child aged throughout the series of the movie. That being said, the movie was fucking terrible. Don't watch it. Uh, anyway. The Shining was shot in chronological order. Yeah, you can tell when you look at Shelley Duvall. Uh, that being said, with it being filmed out of order and everything I'm, else... I'm going to go on ahead and just interject, son. That woman was mistreated on oh, the Oh, she 100% was mistreated. And that was low down that you just said, sir. I'm, I'm not saying it to... The entire cast was mistreated. I'm not, I was okay. not saying that to denigrate Shelley Duvall at all. I really, truly was not. You can tell that... Because, and, I mean, she's losing her hair at that point, like... I legit feel terrible for her whenever I'm watching that movie because I'm like I see her reactions and I'm like that's real. I kind of feel that like this is just shit. another day of the of, of the week for Jack Nicholson. I really do. It may, no, no. no. <laughs> Joking due to Jack Nicholson's persona. Anyway, back to Halloween. Due to the fact that it was filmed not in chronological order, in order to maintain certain levels of tension and fear in the characters, they created what is known as a fear meter. And this is actually something that was created for this film that has endured throughout Hollywood since. They tell characters, okay, you're fear right now. You'd be at about a two. You're kind of freaked out because you feel like somebody's following you, but you don't really know what's going on. Your fear's at a seven. You're absolutely, you're running away. You're scared, but you, you kind of feel like if you can get enough distance around, your fear is at a 10. You are 100% certain that you are about to die. It, it has had lasting impact throughout Hollywood going forward from this film. 
The score was largely piano-based. The very idea of it was we wanted to strip it down and make it as simple and recognizable as possible. Like how Godzilla, there's a very distinct orchestral trumpet motif whenever Godzilla wins a fight, for example. Same thing with Jaws, the cello. Like, it's a very noticeable thing. I don't know a single person. You said this last time as well, and I'm sure you feel the same way. I don't know a single person that has seen movies that does not immediately recognize that piano as Michael Myers. Well, I think what I said yesterday is that, or whenever we actually recorded it, was even whenever you hear that piano, the person may not know, oh, that's from, that's Michael Myers. That's from the Halloween franchise, but... They'll at least be like, ain't that from some, like, that's from a scary movie right. or something like that. They at least know what genre it belongs I, I, into. I would say it's one of the three most iconic movie themes. The other two being Star Wars, Superman, and uh, four, possibly Jurassic Park. No, I think Jaws is probably up there with all those. Yeah. It's another time, people. Yeah, yeah that'll, be, that'll be another discussion. Anyway, <laughs> like that silence was all of our all of our hamsters was going to where we're like, uh... <laughs> yeah, so. let's let's not get off on no go trails right now. But that being said, it did use a couple of pop songs from the time period. Probably most notably, "Don't Fear the Reaper." As such, that movie was featured, I believe, three times in Rob Zombie's 2007 Halloween movie. It was released October 25th, of 1978. It pulled in $1.27 million on its opening weekend. It brought in a total of $47 million in the U.S. and $23 million overseas for a total of about $70 million. When it was released, NBC bought the television rights for $3 million with the plan to begin airing it on television in 1981. It has been, obviously, when you take a movie like that that had somebody getting killed or sex scenes or whatnot, especially aired on NBC in the 80s, you have to edit that. Well, apparently, they had actually recorded, because of all the extra footage that they had done in various different scenes, there has been discovered to be nearly an hour's worth of different footage of this movie that was apparently believed to be filmed for the idea of using it on television. However, no audio exists with this footage at all. At this point, it is considered lost footage. Uh, Due to the fact that it was released in the 70s and at the time... Only certain movies got a lot of heavy advertising, whether that was in newspapers, television, things like that. It relied predominantly on word of mouth to get people to go to the theater and see it. Critics of the time did not care for this movie. They were extremely dismissive of it, uninterested. They felt that it was bland. They felt that the characters all lacked any sort of recognizable traits, which is hilarious to think of nowadays. It would take many years for this film to be more fondly looked upon. Also, at the time the movie came out, and it is important to note before I say anything else, that John Carpenter personally thinks that all of this is a load of hooey and it takes away from everything that the movie was. A lot of people that work in the psychological field felt that this was very... This film itself is a microcosm of sexual violence. Because all the characters that get attacked are the ones who have sex... Uh, Lori, by by virtue of being a virgin, she's the one who manages to get away. And John Carpenter, one of the things he said is, well, I mean, she takes the longest metal object and stabs the guy with it at the end, so how is this sexual violence towards women if she's the one that does that? Also, I don't really think it can be disputed, because, I mean, yes, there was, and we touched on this last time as well, 
there was a final girl, quote-unquote, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. She was very much a damsel in distress, trying to get away. This was the real birth of the final girl in horror movies. Because not only did Laurie Strode live, she fought back. Yes. She fought to not die. This is where we finish up with the first Halloween movie. As mentioned at the top of the hour, uh, this movie spawned a franchise. Multiple timelines, multiple sequels. Some good, some bad. Some that should never see the light of day again, and others that, were it not for very specific circumstances, might have been mildly successful in their own right. We are going to talk about them. Now, John Carpenter initially... It is another urban myth, honestly, that the idea of the Halloween films was that John Carpenter had this idea of making an anthology of sorts to where every single movie would be a different thing. Like the first one, obviously, Michael Myers' representation of the Boogeyman. And a lot of this comes from when we get to Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. This movie was such a success financially that even though the critics didn't really care for it, the studio's like, you guys, we, we want to make another one. We, ha- we, want to ma- we want you guys to make another film. They made a sequel, which picks up directly at the end of the first movie. Over the course of this movie, we discover that Laurie Strode is Michael Myers' long-lost baby sister. John Carpenter had never intended on that. He wanted there to be no connection like that. It was strictly supposed to be, this is a psychotic person who stalks and kills a babysitter. Then you get to Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. I have seen this movie one time in its entirety. I believe you've only seen about a half hour's worth of it. Mm-hmm. There are a rather loud, if minor, group of people that want to proclaim this film as being so much better than it actually was. And I will say this. If it weren't for the fact that it was marketed as Halloween 3, if it weren't for the fact that it was marketed in such a way when it came out that Michael was implied to appear in this film, if this movie had simply been titled Season of the Witch and progressed from there with its exact storyline and everything else, it probably would have been more fondly looked at. I don't think it would have been a tremendous success, but it probably would not have this dark cloud that follows it of being an awful movie. I think it would have been more successful, but for me personally, you know, you guys know me, I can watch a movie that its budget is like, you would swear it's only $15. What was the and, name of that I, one movie on Disney with the, the ghost that scared the shit out of you? Um, Mr. Boogity. Mr. Boogity. Yeah. But, you're um, laughing. When you're a kid, shit like that can terrify you. But, um, it didn't terrify but um, yeah, so you know the Polaroid of Lane Sinclair. Let's move on. But so I can watch movies that are very low budget, that are very bad. Astro um, Zombies. Yeah, Astro Zombies. I love that. Velocipaster. Uh, haven't seen that. Oh one. my god! It's, 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 oh my it's, god. it's on my list. Um, the Fantastic Four live action film, the the first one, the Roger Corman. It's, it's a very I was about good. to say, you talking about the Roger Corman one or Fan Force? Because I finally watched Fan Force the other day, and I wished I hadn't. I'm sorry, Ugh. but um, yeah, like I had avoided Season of the Witch for years because I knew it didn't have any connection really to the franchise. I believe it's one of those movies to where like the Halloween franchise exists in Season of the Witch, but as a movie. Am I uh, remembering something incorrectly? 
there. It's been a while since I've Dude, seen it. Dude, I haven't seen okay. that movie since his girls were in elementary school. But anywho, um, yeah, like I knew there was no Michael Myers. It was going to be very heavy on like the supernatural and all that. So I avoided it because I'm like, whenever I want to watch Halloween, I want to see Michael Myers. I want to see him wrecking people. I want to see Loomis trying to catch him. I want to see him just bulldoze his way through anything and everyone that gets in his way. Well, whenever, I think it was, um, I honestly can't remember which movie. I think, I, no, there wasn't a movie coming out. I think it was whenever the 2018 film was announced. I was like, I'm going to rewatch the whole franchise, you know, just to get myself amped up and ready. And I was somewhere, I saw Season of the Witch, and I was like, I think I've avoided it long enough. It's time to actually sit down and watch it. So I plugged it in. And again, I know doggone well. It is not connected. Michael is not in there. It's a standalone horror film on its own by itself. I made it about half an hour into it, and I was like, I can't do it. And I turned it off, and I've never had the desire to watch it again. But I did tell you, whenever we recorded before, that since it's been so long since you've seen it, I never got to finish it. I am not opposed to sitting down and watching it with someone else so that I can vent while I'm watching it and all of that. And honestly, and then it we probably do, will happen. We can like do an episode on it afterwards or something like that. But at this point in time, that's the only way I'm going to finish that film. Look, on a similar note to that, I had an episode some time ago where myself and Ian did... Dragon Ball Evolution, because that was a movie that I had refused to watch for many, many years. And Batman and Robin, because that was a movie that he had refused to watch for many, many years. Cal was supposed to be with us on that, because that was the first time Ian has ever seen that movie. There were multiple points in that movie where Ian had to have me pause it so that he could rage for a moment. I've, I gotta figure it's gonna be the same thing with Season of the Witch with you. I don't know. I don't know if there's gonna be. We're not talking about Batman. So I, don't I, even. Start. I, I don't. I don't know if it's gonna be rage or if it's gonna be just silent disappointment. Because, like I said, I do not have fond memories of what I did see of it. I just could not get into the characters, into the story, into the whole premise of it. I was just like, in my opinion, even unrelated to the overall franchise. I'm like, this this movie's just bad. There have been multiple movies in my life that I felt that way and not watched the rest of them. That I would then finally watch while high, which tremendously upped the entertainment value of them. I I actually really enjoyed Season of the Witch for what it was. I had no difficulty in separating it from the rest of the franchise and merely enjoyed it on its own merits. Now, was that when it came out or is that as an adult? That was as an adult. Okay. <clears throat> but... You have to understand, and I'm not directing this at either one of you, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just saying like to the listeners, you have to understand, like, the Halloween franchise at that point in time, like, there was not a whole lot of big-name movies that was coming out, like, multiple big-name movies every single year like there are today. Yeah. Yes. They, they, were, they were spaced Pretty out. Pretty much the only real examples of that are, like, Star Wars and... Yeah. Godfather. And even them, those took several years in between when the first and second movies came out. Yeah. So, I mean, you had movies here and there. You know, you would have Jaws, and then you would have Star Wars, and then you would have, you know, this pretty much revitalized the slasher genre, even though Texas Chainsaw Massacre really laid down the foundation. This is the film that really, like, kicked it off. 
And then you would have like Nightmare on Elm Street and uh, Friday the 13th popping up. So at the time, after a very successful Halloween and Halloween 2, like this franchise is starting to look really good. It's making money. There's people that's like, they're enjoying the films and all of that. And so it got to a point to where it's like, okay, here's Halloween 3. And whenever Halloween 3 comes out, People go in because, as you said, it was marketed as, like, this is Halloween 3. Michael Myers is going to return. People were going in like, he had a pretty definitive death in part 2. Mm -hmm. How in the world did he escape? How in the world did he get out of this? And then they go and watch Halloween 3. No, My nothing to do with Michael Myers. Not related to the franchise in the slightest. It's supernatural. It whole brand new characters. People were freaking mad. Like, my mother (laughs) saw these movies as they were coming out, and she actually, I believe, she went and saw Season of the Witch on a date. I asked her about it years later, because I was getting to the French. She goes, Season of the Witch was the stupidest shit I have ever seen in my life. (laughs) And I I was like, was it that bad, Mom? And she's like, I'll put it to you this way. I grew up in Texas in the 70s. I've seen some stupid shit in my life. That was worse. That, That would be about the equivalent nowadays is like, before The Mandalorian and before the Boba Fett TV series and all of that kind of stuff, let's just say that Lucas, the you know, the people at the mouse decided to announce, hey, we're going to do a TV show about Boba Fett. He's going to be in it. We're going to feature him. Like, Boba Fett's going to be in that. People are going to be hyped. They're going to be ready. All right, let's do it. The whole marketing is for Boba Fett. TV show starts. It's episode one of The Mandalorian. Well, we know that Boba Fett is not in season one of The Mandalorian. No, he's not. So people would watch that entire series thinking, where the heck is Boba? At that point in time, you're not going to judge the film on its own merit or the TV show on its own merit. You're going to basically look at them and say, this is what you promised to give us, and you took it away from us. We're pissed off at you. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. So, like, again... Season of the Witch probably would have fit better on its own. And that's really where a lot of the whole, oh, Halloween was meant to be an anthology of sorts kind of thing came into being and was strengthened throughout the years as this is what it was going to be because John Carpenter said, well, no, Michael's dead, so if I was going to continue, it would be this way, which was not at all accurate. Now, the idea of somebody making an anthology of horror films in such a regard is interesting and has been done under Tales from the Crypt. Creep Show and various others. Snoop Dogg, Tales from the Hood. It's happened. Well, like, um, um, what's, what's the name of that show? American Horror Story. American Horror yeah, Story. Like each season is something mm-hmm. different or something like that. To the point that one of them is actually called, I believe, Anthology. Am I wrong? I, I have no idea. I mean, I, I know of the existence of the show, but I've, I, never, I, I, I've never seen a single episode. As a quick side note before we move on to the uh, Thorn trilogy, uh, the guy that made American Horror Story. Also made Glee and the new Netflix Jeffrey Dahmer series. So Season of the Witch, again, I feel like it probably would have been a little bit more successful had it not been marketed so heavily as being Halloween film. But at the end of the day, it would be one of multiple blights upon the franchise to come. Now, Cal and I both mentioned earlier that the fir- our first full exposure to a Halloween movie was... Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. We mentioned that off-air, by the way, in case any of you were... Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, well, yeah. we did mention it. <laughs> yeah. We did mention it on-air in the last recording. Yeah. Um, the, this the, was a hell of a first chapter for this trilogy. 
It was fantastic. Like I honestly can't even remember. Like it was on. We had Direct TV at that at the time. I can't remember if it was on like Stars or Encore or whatever. But I remember stumbling across it, and it was whenever, like Michael takes the guy and like throws him in like the Transformers and all that yeah. kind of stuff. So yeah, um, that was the. You see, that, in, that in my the, exposure, that was, that was the part that hooked me. I mean, I was just like, this dude just picked up a guy, threw him in a bunch of Transformers. He got fried. I'm like, never heard of this franchise. Why is that dude wearing a mask? Why does the whole town want to kill him? I you have see, no idea what's going on. I'm going to check this out. You see, my exposure to it was AMC used to, I, I, they might still do it, I don't know, but they used to do a thing called 30 Days of Halloween where they would air a bunch of different movies and then Halloween Day itself, they would air just the Halloween movies. And they, I'll never forget, they had this stupid little jingle that they took. You know what I'm talking about? No, they took this jingle, um, they took the, the Mockingbird song and changed it to, with lyrics about Michael. Like, hush babysitter, don't make a noise. Michael is coming to kill half of Illinois. Okay, that's cool. And like and that, that, that's what hooked me. I was like, huh, okay, well, I'll watch those movies. And of course, I had school on Halloween, so when I get out of school, the first three movies are over with. And I had never seen this. That was like, I don't know, eight or nine years old at the time. And uh, I turned it on, and I'm like, okay. And I see the guy in the mask, and my first thought was, and I'm ashamed to admit this, my first thought was, that looks like a ripoff of Friday the 13th, because I had seen Jason before I had seen Michael Myers. Same. I now know it's kind of the other way around. But I sat there, and I watched it, and, you know, I just I enjoyed everything about it. I thought it had a lot of good tension to it. It had, a lot of, like, it had some good jump scares, and, like, I really enjoyed this movie. This was also where we started getting into some of the superhuman strength of Michael Myers. There, there is one, one scene in particular, like he, you know, I mean, even in the first film, his his strength kind of fluctuates in the first yeah. film because yeah. there, there's a part where you know he attacks the boyfriend of um the girl in the Myers house where he just like grabs him one arm, presses him up against the wall, like lifts him up one arm and all that kind of stuff, but then. Lori locks herself in that closet with those little flimsy doors, and he's like, <laughs> you know, like it can't get in. Yeah, but who so, thought that uh, aliens and Michael Myers would have the same structural differences and problems with doorknobs? So yeah, that his his strength kind signs of, joke. His yeah. his uh, strength kind of fluctuated in the original, but in this one, they really started showing more of like the super strength that he would eventually yeah. have, picking people up very effortlessly. Like and throwing them into transformers, I think at one point, like he like he either crushes somebody's skull he or he dismembers them pretty good, like up at their head area. Like he's just, yeah. Th th this is the one where they were basically like, th he's not just a regular serial killer. Like he's starting to get more of like the no. pure evil persona mm -hmm. that they were trying to give him, and it's like that. The evil inside of yeah. him allows yeah. him to be that strong. They, basically, they were turning him into a demon. Yes. And and this movie also, it had Danielle Harris. This is when she first came in. And Danielle Harris would go on to be have a tremendous amount of fame as Scream Queen. And she plays the daughter of Laurie Strode in this film. Laurie Strode, of course, was killed off screen. Or faked her death or whatever you want to word it as. Like, for all we are aware, Laurie's dead. Daniel Harris' character, Jamie, is raised by adopted parents. Uh, 
Donald Pleasance returns as Samuel Loomis in this film as well. Which was one of the other things, like, again, this was this movie was marketed as the return of Michael Myers because of the failure of Season of the Witch. The studio absolutely wanted people to know Michael is in this one. Yeah. We're going to put him on the poster. His name is literally in the title. Like, yeah. and they don't even, worry, he's coming back. They <laughs> even made a big point of revealing to everybody that Dr. Loomis will also be returning in this. Ba- basically, yeah, make it, letting everybody know we're sorry for Season of the Witch. He's back. Dr. Loomis is back. This is the continuation of what y'all want. And this movie, again... It was a very solid first chapter to this trilogy. It went really well. It ends on a bit of a cliffhanger note with the young Jamie wearing the same clown costume that Michael wore when he killed his sister. She's holding a knife and everything. Then we get to the fifth movie, which is The Revenge of Michael Myers. Yes, The Return of the Revenge of the Curse. The, the, The idea of this movie establishes that the character of Jamie has a psychic link with Michael Myers. She's also mute throughout the majority of this film. Her only lines being, Uncle, let me see, when she, and, and he, st- Michael stops what he's about to do, takes off his mask, she reaches up to wipe away a tear, and he goes crazy again. This one was not as good as The Return of Michael Myers. I still enjoy it, but yeah, they're, they're kind of, this is pretty much the trajectory like it's starting to go downhill yeah. <laughs> like, before falling completely very, off. Very, very slowly. This is where the the franchise began to to make its fall because they introduced the cult. They introduced like yeah. like no, more. no, they did introduce well, the no, cult no, no. in well, this. Well, well, the thing is, to me, uh, I think the the initial uh, impetus for the cult began in two. Whenever he writes, Sal went on the chalkboard. Yeah. Well, this, six of this, one, half dozen of another. This this one concrete, like yeah, introduces right. because the at the end of the film, Michael has been apprehended. He is in a jail cell. He's still wearing his fucking mask for some reason. Pardon my language, but I'm sorry. You arrest Batman, you're not going to leave his mask on him while he's in his jail cell, right. unless it's the Adam West TV show. That well, they, that's they Adam would. West. But, but um, yeah, but then th- this movie, like it's the cult beats up or kills the members of the Haddonfield Police Department and breaks him out. Yeah, and I'm not going to lie, um, I'm not 100% opposed to the cult idea. I think if handled a little bit differently, yes, the execution if, if introduced was the from the beginning, like from the actual beginning, I could have been more on board with it. But to be one of those things to where it's like, oh, oh we, we, we've, <laughs> al- we've already seen three movies of this guy. He's a psycho. He's a serial killer. He... Is trying to kill his baby sister, and now he's trying to kill his niece and all that kind of stuff. You know, this could happen. It's somewhat realistic. And then out of nowhere, it's like, oh, by the way, there's a whole cult subplot that we're about to throw in there that we gave y'all really hardly no warning or nothing. And it's just like, where, why? You know? <laughs> I, I actually liked the, the cult angle for what it could have been, not for what it was. Does that make sense? Like I, I I agree with Cal. Had it been handled differently, that it, it really could have been something. Yeah, it could have been, but the, the the execution of it was piss poor. <laughs> From there, we move into the curse of Michael Myers, which really establishes the demonic and magical origin that is Michael's superhuman resilience 
everything else. It has a, while he looks exactly the damn same now as he did then, a young Paul Rudd, which is really <laughs> what I think the real curse was. I think the curse was that Paul Rudd would live forever to see this failure haunt him for the rest of his days. Much as Matthew McConaughey has had to live with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 following him. Renee Zellweger's had her own career issues, so we're she gets a pass. But this movie picks up. Uh, Jamie is now an adult, not played by Danielle Harris. Dies, giving birth. And it is heavily implied that this child is Michael Myers' child. Like... <laughs> For everything that we just said about Season of the Witch, but that it's not connected so you can view it as like a standalone thing, and you either love it or hate it. This is pretty much the entry in the core Halloween franchise with Michael Myers and everything that's like, you either love or hate it. I don't know, like there's some people that view it strictly as like a guilty pleasure. Oh, I love the curse of Michael Myers, and then there's people like me that's like, I can't do it. It's garbage entry. It's horrible. <laughs> it was so bad. This movie was so poorly received, poorly reviewed. Everything about this movie was so bad that they decided, for course correction, we need to go back to Halloween 2 for our continuity and completely do away with the Thorn trilogy. With some slight hints that it could have possibly still happened in an alternate moment. Jamie Lee Curtis returns in both myself and Cal's Probably our favorite film in the franchise, Halloween H2O, 20 I'm, years I'm, later. I'm very comfortable in saying it's my favorite film in the franchise, and that includes the newest reboot of um, Halloween and then Kills and then Ends. Like, H2O is... I freaking love H2O. H2O is amazing. I have, very little, I have very little negative things to say about it. Mm -hmm. um, the, the idea of... I mean, and they've kind of revisited that with the 2018 reboot... But that would be H four O. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that don't that don't have the that does not quite have the same of uh, uh, maybe forty H or something. It just it didn't sit right. But you, I mean, it's like you know, you're in the certain mentality of like, okay, all the other ones don't count. To where even like if you had just watched part of the Thorn trilogy, even just a year prior to watching H2O or something like that, when you watch H2O and they come, like, face-to-face -face through the door, like, through the glass and all that kind of stuff, like, that's a freaking powerful moment yes. because in your mind, yes, you're like, is. this is the first time they've seen each other in 20 years. She's staring down her brother, her would-be killer. He murdered her friends, and he's basically looking at her like, yep. I have finally come for you kind of thing. And they like, even you've touch on long enough. I'm coming for you. They and even touch on a little bit the idea of her having another child because like, she mentions at one point that she faked her own death. She's going under an assumed name. The possibility of her having had a child and leading to that was briefly mentioned. So there is at least some sort of... They'd left it a little bit like, for those of who were truly fans of the... Thorn trilogy, they at least have a way of saying, okay, well, we still feel like this happened. I mean, it could work, but then it also, it, it wouldn't make any sense to work because in the Thorn trilogy, yes, it is implied or expressed that Lori has died and or faked her death in some kind of way to where when H2O rolls around, you could be like, okay, that's what she did. She just faked her death and everything. But the entire cult angle has been dropped. Yes, it's gone. and has never returned. Officially, H2O is considered to be a reboot. But if you just want to pick and choose like what you want to, yeah. what timelines you want to follow and everything, it is possible 
to view H2O as a continuation yep. of the Thorn Thorn. Church. And when she in in this movie as well, like you talk about how there, there's aspects of the movie that are fantastic. One of my personal favorite moments is not just when she sees him through the glass, but when she gets her kid and her kid's girlfriend out of the out of the, the school grounds and locks them out so they can't come after her. She takes the axe and goes look for her. There's like a big faraway shot of her and she screams Michael's name. That's a blood curdling scream yeah. that she lets out. Like she's screaming for him. The camera pans to him. He's slowly like walking down the hallway mm-hmm. to where it's like she knows, he knows, the audience knows. Like this is like this is going to end going down. And some, and, some, <laughs> and some people might sit there and be like, "Oh, it's just you know Lori or something like that." But no, with the history and with who Jamie Lee Curtis was at that point in time, some of the other movies that she's been in, it's like at that point in time, like this, this is the. The heavyweight fight yes. of horror films. As a side that's note, coming up right now, the freaking rematch between Lori that is pissed off. You've already killed her friends. You've come for her kids. I'm coming for you. And Michael, that's like I'm trying to finish this yeah. business. As, so, as like, a side <laughs> note, back when her hair was still a little bit longer, I think she would have made a fantastic April O'Neil. That's just my personal opinion on that. I got no problem with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But, I, I'd give it that. The movie was, you know, and because this is a horror movie in the 90s, the way you have to end this kind of thing, you have to end it on like a little bit of a, a cliffhanger of a, oh, we could follow this up kind of thing. And of course you had to have a Creed song in it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we had a whole, we had about a two minute thing where we were laughing about this when we recorded the other day because of you, sir. Laugh look, it up, fellas. Look, look, got audience, audience members, hear me now. Shameless, I don't care. I'm a Creed fan. I've seen them in concert. I do not care. However, I very, I very much understand why people hate them as much as they do, yeah. and I don't hold anything. Well, against another them. reason that Ian specifically, and it's not even so much Creed as it is Scott Stapp. No, it's Mark Tremonti. And, well, and it's it's a bit of both, and it's also the fact <laughs> that I was inundated with this whenever they were at their peak. Well, you also got to realize Ian like, is a musician. Play, like, can you play Creed? Ian is a musician. <laughs> Could you play higher? He had longer hair at one point, and there was a passing resemblance to Scott Stapp. Yeah. He's had enough. <laughs> yeah. So, but Jamie Lee Curtis wanted to be done. She's like, okay, I'm not coming back to this franchise. I'm done. What will it take to get you to come back? You kill me in the first five minutes of the movie, I'll come back. Well, and because didn't you had found out that in order for her to return, like, for H2O, she wanted to do a movie extremely similar Two to the 2018 reboot. Yeah. And whenever they were basically like, we're not going that route. This is what we're going to do. I mean, H2O, it's one of those deals to where like, there's so many different timelines with the franchise. If you want to view that the franchise ended right there, you absolutely can. You absolutely because can. Because it is not revealed until the next movie, Resurrection, that... <laughs> Michael was not actually killed. He had swapped bodies with. It was a first responder. Like that one's my guilty like pleasure movie out of the group is Halloween Resurrection. It's it's horrible, but I enjoy it. It's, it is terrible. It's it's watchable and at least. Like but. I, there's even okay. So Michael is supposed to be a psycho. He's supposed to be evil, soulless. He has no empathy. He has nothing like that. Why they then have this Michael trick Lori? into coming closer to him so that he can kill her rather than just, I, I don't know what, like that, that completely does not fit with what they had presented Michael to be at that point. Which to me, after everything that Lori has been through so far in this franchise, it was right after she has her, 
knockout, drag-out fight, you know, defending her family, defending her kids and everything, and finally gets the closure that she had been waiting for for two decades, that's what sent her over the edge and, like, made her go cuckoo. I'm like, boy, I see it. You're already in the friggin' nut hatch for life for murder like that. Why not just cut the damn rope, let the guy die, and just, oh, add it to my sentence. I don't know. It's just, I don't know. So the the idea of Halloween Resurrection, he's finally killed Lori. What's a, what's a man to do? Go home and retire. Well, you can't retire when Busta Rhymes and Tyra Banks <laughs> are filming a reality show. And who'd have thought that of all the things he's faced... Buster Rhymes would be the one thing that Michael Myers could not overcome. Each franchise has a film in, in its <laughs> franchise that's like this. You know, Friday the 13th has uh, Jason Takes Manhattan. Hey! Um, I like Jason Takes Jason Manhattan. X. Jason no, X. No, no, Jason X is fantastic. No, it's not. But, <laughs> uh, Friday, I mean, um, Nightmare on Elm Street, take your pick. Pretty much for, anything for, from two for, on. For the ridiculousness of uh, some of those movies. I say, I say everything from four on. The next but, yeah, like, Texas Chainsaw Jesus. Massacre. Leave, what, leave New Nightmare out. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, other than the first reboot in the early 2000s, from two and on. Ridiculous. So, yeah, Halloween had to do, it had to follow suit and come out with an absolute, like, batshit ridiculous, like, and to, to the, the people the, making the movie yeah. had to have been making it going, there's no way this is going to be well received. Okay. What? How can we make this even worse? Like to the point and, that not only do they, they bring back the whole superhuman strength aspect with him pinning a dude to a door three feet off with a steak knife. First of all, the knife would not have held in that door for that kind of thing. The guy's body weight, the door itself, yeah. But then you also well, have I mean, the that point... Could, that could be said with the original as well. But then at some point in this movie... Buster Rhymes is dressed up as Michael. He's in the building to uh, to scare these kids. And the real Michael starts walking behind him. And he turns around and he's like, you can't be Michael Myers. I'm Michael Myers. Get back to your job. What are you stupid going? He's like pushing him. And Michael just kind of... That sounds like a right. Scooby-Doo bit. Uh, oh, we'll talk about <laughs> Scooby later. So. Scooby-Doo, Bugs Bunny, take your pick. Yeah, it's yeah, stupid. Yeah. Like, why would the... Oh, my God. And... You still don't know for sure whether Michael dies at the end of this. You just don't. I choose to think that he did just so he wasn't miserable. I don't know. Anymore. They're looking at his dead body. His eye suddenly opens. I, I think it was he just twitched. That's all. That's what I'm going with. So, again, this movie, so bad, so awful, they figure we can't continue with this. Yet again. You have your problems with Rob Zombie. I have as many. A, I have many problems. And as an Rob artist, Zombie, sir. You, you have your issues with him. I personally am one of the biggest Rob Zombie fans I know. And I try my damnedest not to hold that against you. <clears throat> the first Halloween movie, the 2007 <laughs> Rob Zombie Halloween, even you have admitted it's a good movie. I will say, as he talked about with Rob Zombie, um, not a fan of the man. On a personal level, from things I've read in various articles, he seems like he's a genuinely good guy. Yes. Him and his wife are genuinely good people and all of that kind of stuff. But it happens. I'm not in sync with his artistic views. I'm not a big fan of his He's music. hit or miss for me with a filmmaker. Um, okay, I'm he a, is. I'm way less of a fan of his movies. And I will tell anybody the only film that he even remotely has his name attached to that I like is the 2007 Rob Zombie's Halloween. 
I went and saw it in theaters twice. I have very little to nothing negative to say about it. Whenever I, like, I remember driving and I heard on the radio that they were rebooting Halloween. And I was like, um, okay, kids, for those of you that don't know, there used to be a thing called the radio that you could just listen, <laughs> like, you know, people would broadcast things. It and killed you the radio. You, 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 you would just uh, listen to it. It wasn't streaming or anything like that. But anywho, um, whoever was talking, they said something about uh, there's going to be a reboot of Halloween. And I remember getting super excited. I'm like, awesome. It's a reboot, a remake, going back to its roots, a retelling of the original. I'm down. Let's do it. And then five seconds later, they're like, uh, it's going to be written and directed by Rob Zombie. And I wanted to punch the window out of my truck while I was driving. I was like, why? Of all people. And like, I dreaded the release of that movie up until, but I'm a fan. Oh yeah, Tyler Mayne was a fantastic night, choice. Opening night, I was in the theater to watch that movie because I'm like, I'm gonna give it a shot, and I will tell anybody, Rob Zombie proved me wrong in every single way with the 2007 remake. We'll talk about Rob Zombie's two here in a minute. Yes, we but will. As far as 07, I was very surprised. I loved the movie. A lot of people give the origin of Michael whenever he's a kid. They say it was overdrawn. They say it was unnecessary. Because it took a half hour of that. I, I, I personally love that. I think it was fantastic scene. because this isn't the 1970s. Right. It's not. Filmmaking, acting, whatever you want to call it, things have improved so much that to have put this in there. Also, Sherry Moon Zombie is a lovely woman. As far as her acting goes, she has been very hit or miss in a lot of the things that she has done. I thought she did a good job as Michael's mother. Agreed. Agreed. She did. Dave Furch did a fantastic job as a young Michael Myers. Yes, he did. Yeah, we get to see Ma Malcolm McDowell with an awful haircut playing a young, younger Sam Loomis at this point. Uh, once you've seen him in Caligula, I mean, there's no going lower than that. I mean, like, Fair point. True. But to me, the, two, the, the three biggest things that stand out for me the most with this movie... Where Scout Taylor Compton as Glory Strode. Perfect as Lori. Yeah. Tyler Maine as the adult Michael Myers. Perfect. For those of y'all that don't know, Tyler Maine was a professional wrestler. He wrestled in WCW in the early 90s and actually was a member of the, the Towers of Terror. He took, I believe, Mark Calloway or Dan Spivey's role from them when they initially left out from there. Uh, he is six foot seven. He's also saber tooth. I was getting there. Hold your horses, sir. He is six foot seven, weighs two hundred seventy pounds. He was in Joe Dirt very, very briefly. He he was the oil field worker that beat the crap out of Joe and then got lit on fire when he was peeing near the oil. Um, For you Brad Pitt fans, he was Ajax in Troy. Mm -hmm. And then of course he played Sabretooth in the two thousands X Men movie. He's a big dude. He's a fan. He's a giant, but he did a fantastic job with this role. He is a hulking individual, and because of his previous career is remarkably light on his feet for how big he is. Mm -hmm. See, before, in all of the other older, like, classic Halloween films, whenever they would give Michael, like, his superhuman strength, he's lifting people with one arm and all of that, you kind of sit there and, like... You have to suspend your disbelief. Like, you're, you're like, it's yeah. kind of... You know, he's a very average-looking dude, especially in the original when he's played by Nick Castle. He's a very slender, scrawny-looking guy. To have him replaced with Tyler Mayne in um, Rob Zombie's film... It pretty much made it to where 
This is a guy that could bulldoze through anybody you put in front of him. Yeah. If he picks somebody up with one arm, which he does, uh, he does whenever he picks him up and like stabs him mm-hmm. to where he's pinned up against the wall and everything. You're like, yeah, okay, that's a big dude. Yeah, yeah I can see him being. Ken Forey is a very big man, and as Joe Grizzly, he was dwarfed by Michael in this film. Ken Forey is a very large man. The man played college football. They actually destroyed that. Uh, that, that was a genuine bathroom set, yeah. by the way. They actually went to a bathroom at a old, truck stop. That was two big old boys that had that exhibition. <laughs> when, they finished, when they finished all that, Rob Zombie walks into the counter and goes, Hey, uh, we're going to write you guys a check. Because um, you know how we wanted to film in your bathroom? Well, we destroyed it. So we're, we're going to pay to have that taken care of. It, you'll be fine. Um, and, of course, Malcolm McDowell as... Sam Loomis in this movie. Loved his performance so much. as Mark And I mentioned Lewis. this when we recorded last time. I yeah. always got to mention this because he it just cracked him up. Um, when, in the movie, when she does the whole, was that the boogeyman line? First of all, the, the theater that I was in, they burst out laughing at that. And I'm like, that's not meant to be funny. It's really not. But when he says, I believe it was, and then Michael punches through the window to grab her. Which I'm not going to lie, scared the living shit out of me. Oh, when yes. When I first watched Oh, movie, yes. Because I wasn't expecting that crap. I'm like, okay, the movie's about to end. Bam. Bam. I'm like, he's still alive. You know? <laughs> Caleb was on an earlier episode where we talked about Halloween. And he said that there's a part that always made him laugh was hearing Malcolm McDowell scream, What the hell? The moment he did. And he feels like he was actually caught off guard because... You, you hear more of his accent in that. Mm. Like, I'm not going to lie. The theatrical edition of the 2007 Halloween movie directed by Rob Zombie is wonderful. It is an outstanding Halloween film. The, th- the director's cut contains one major change that both myself and Cal do not care for. Um... First of all, I'm going to go ahead and say, like we did whenever we yes, and I tried to re- well. when we tried to record this before. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say, for those of you, and I'm being serious, I'm not making light of anything. If you are easily triggered or have trauma concerning like um, sexual, sexual violence, assault, or sexual violence, I suggest you skip this part yeah, I that will, I'm going to talk about. I, Be- skip about four minutes. Because in the... And we talked about this prior to recording, like the three of us. The scene that he shot in the theatrical version of Michael escaping, it's powerful. It showcases his strength. It actually showcases his intelligence to me because yeah. he was basically like, this is where I can make my move. I've waited long enough. It's time for me to get out of here and go for my sister which he didn't want to kill initially, uh, in Rob Zombie's version anyway. But um, it was a good scene. It was a powerful scene. I loved the way they filmed the escape. We actually got to see the escape for the first time because in the original film, Loomis and the nurse just drive up and they're already loose. You had no idea how he got loose or anything. So you finally got to see like what actually happened. And then enters the director's cut. In which whenever it's time for that scene, the escape scene, you have two guys. Um, I rewatched the scene earlier today just so it would be a little bit more fresh in my head. Um, I'm sorry. At first, I thought it was just one person that works there. But after rewatching it, I think they were both in They both were, yeah. 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 So these two dudes go down the hallway and they say that there's a new girl at the asylum. And one of them goes into her room and 
uh, brings her out. And, you know, I don't know to what extent was wrong with her because it's just, you know, there's different reasons for people to be in uh, under one roof whenever it comes to an asylum and all of that. But she was of enough of a mind to know what was happening was bad and that she didn't like it. And while they're looking at her and they're kind of talking sweet to her and all of that kind of stuff, and then they just randomly start groping her. And assaulting. then assaulting her. And then they, and it's important to know that this is in Michael's room. Not yet. And there she starts screaming. And then one of them says, I have a good idea. And they open up the door to Michael's room, which, by the way, it is very well known at this point in time. He, Loomis has written a book. He is, yeah. he is yeah. in that room for killing multiple people, including a nurse at the asylum that they are currently at. As a and child. for whatever reason, these two individuals, and for whatever reason, Rob Zombie thought this was grade A writing, we're going to bring this poor girl into his room to rape her. And they proceed to rape her. And it's a pretty graphic scene. It's, it's a and, hard scene to watch. And Michael is very unmoved. Doesn't give a hoot. He's oh. just sitting there. He's painting his mask. Like, that's just his little escape. That's what he's doing. He draws the line, not the girl being raped in his room, because he is pure evil. He draws the line whenever the two dudes start grabbing his masks and throwing them at him, and they're pretending to wear them and all of that. That's whenever he stands up and he wrecks these two guys. Now, whatever happened to the girl, who knows? It did not show him kill her. It did not show him interact with her in the slightest, because he kills one guy in the room, the other one gets out of the room and is trying to get away, and Michael follows him out of the room and kills him. That's the last we see of anything in the room, so we really don't know what happened to the girl. And then, unfortunately, we get the very painful scene, um, end of sexual assault talk, by the way. But yeah. then we get the very painful scene of seeing Michael kill Danny Trejo's character. Dude. Which, that's, dude. It, that broke my heart, it, man. Dude, that's like, you know, oh, he, good to you, he was good to you, Mikey. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. it's like, oh, boy, that was rough. Like, I mean, he's pure evil. Every single, yeah, every single time Michael Myers has ever killed somebody on screen, I'm like, ah, that's Michael Myers, you know, he's pure evil, he doesn't care but about But that's anybody. the one. But that's the one where I'm like, dang, Mikey, you couldn't have shown just a little <laughs> bit of humanity, like, I mean, he's I, good to you, Mikey. And like, after <laughs> all that, it is important to note that that is an example right there. Rob Zombie has an extremely creative mind. That is a creative mind that in some regards, making something like this should probably be reined in. One of the reasons why the 2007 theatrical edition of Halloween is, I'm not going to say revered, but it is very, very positively looked on, is that he was given very clear, like, what to do and what not to do kind of things. Other than, like, the original, like, the prequel, and like, about Michael's childhood, and then the surprise of him punching through the window and all of that kind of stuff, it was a very faithful adaptation. Yes, and it yeah, is important likewise. to note that... The origin stuff about Michael as a child was written completely by Rob Zombie. He has a very creative mind, and when it is aimed in a very positive way, it goes very well. This movie was such a success that when they made the sequel, they told Rob, we're not going to mandate how you are to make this movie. You are going to have much more control over what happens. Big mistake. Enter Halloween 2. This film... Michael, this, it, it picks up a couple years after the first one. 
Michael is being visited by the spirit of his mother. With, with a prologue at the same night, making you think it is going to take place at the hospital. Yeah, that, that's that the case. Was, but it doesn't. Good, that was a good fake, yeah. It was. But not only is Michael being visited by the spirit of his mother, played again by Sherry Moon Zombie, uh, now Lori is being visited by the same spirit. And the idea in this film was that Lori was eventually going to kill Michael and essentially she was going to become Michael to the point that there was going to be a third film where she was going to be the killer going forward. They had talked about and discussed making a third film, but this stu- movie stu- was studios didn't want to touch. It. No, this movie was such a critical failure and in, in so many ways looked at as one of the, in a lot of ways it's considered one of the worst horror movies ever made, which is a hell of a flip side of that coin for him to have done that. As Cal said, studios said, no, we are not doing this. We are not, no more. No, 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 no. It would take nearly eight years before another Halloween movie would get made. I'm going to share my experience with Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. Yes. In the theater. This was great. So, my brother had never seen any of the Halloween movies, and I let him watch the 2007 film, and he has is pretty much of the same mind of Rob Zombie as I am. And he really enjoyed the 2007 film. So whenever the 2010, when the 2010 film was coming out, Hey, let's go to theaters and watch it. Like, okay, hot dog. So we go, we watch it. By this time, I'm very well versed in the entire franchise. I've seen all the films like multiple times with the exception of three. Like, you know, um, I'm like, all right, let's do it. And, uh, the original Halloween two is one of my favorites. So we go to watch it picks up right where, 07 leaves off, they go to the hospital, and I'm honestly sitting there thinking to myself, like just seeing like the initial kill scenes, how brutal they are and all of that, I'm like, this clown done went and did it again. Like he's going to make another good, a big one, like take it, like I'm going to get an entire movie of this, of him just wrecking these people in the hospital <laughs> and all that. Like, man, that's awesome. Then it does the time jump. Was it two years or three two years? When it does like a two year time jump. And the whole time while we were driving up there, I was telling Rob about the original part two takes place on the same night. It's in the hospital. They find out that, you know, this is when Lori finds out that that's her brother and all that kind of stuff. And so that's all he's heard me talk about. So whenever we go see the movie and it does that time jump, he doesn't recall me talking about a time jump. So he just leans over to me and whispers. He goes, was that supposed to happen? And you can ask him next time y'all are around him. My brother has an official ranking of the angriest he has ever seen or heard me be. And he will openly tell people that my initial, my reaction after seeing the film and walking out of the theater, as well as this moment, whenever he asked me, was that supposed to happen? He said the response I gave like it was more of a growl. (laughs) And I was just like, I was just like, no, because <laughs> I was furious. And after the movie was over, I ended up hating it. The only good positive thing I really had to say about the film was I did like Scout Taylor Compton's performance yet again. Um, I did like, while I didn't like that they strayed away from the kitchen knife, I did like the Bowie knife that Michael had, because for those of you that don't know, I'm a collector of different blades and stuff, uh, knives, tomahawks, swords and stuff. So I appreciate things like that. But yeah, um, at the time I lived, it was about a 
45 to 50 minute drive to get from the theater to my house at the time. My brother will tell anybody that entire drive, no music. He didn't say hardly anything from his end. And it was literally about a 50 minute rant nonstop <laughs> from me about how Rob Zombie is the scum of the earth. One breath. And I hate that he pretty much wrecked the movie and all of that kind of stuff. And I predicted right then and there. I told Rob, I said, dude, I said, I just see the writing on the wall. I don't think there's any bouncing back from that. I said, it's going to be years down the road, and I think it'll have to be a reboot. I said, I, I think he essentially killed what they were trying to do with this, this franchise. This movie also really went overboard on Michael's superhuman strength. Yeah, we yeah. talked about that. When because... he has a very even and slow motion flipping of a car over by himself. As a lifelong fan of events like World's Strongest Man and things like that, that's not physically possible. Like, there are recognized records of, of strength athletes from an open door with the frame being around their shoulders lifting a, an automobile off the ground and standing there for a few moments to hold that record. There's an event where they are strapped inside of the shell of a car and have to go a certain distance. This shell weighs 900 pounds. They do it in about 14 to 20 seconds, give or take. It's like a yoke. And then back in the 80s, they had an event where they actually had to flip a car that had its engine removed a certain amount of times over a certain distance. And the best time was done in like 32 seconds. For one man who, while a very large and hulking human being, nowhere near the physical stature or strength of these men, to have done that on his own in a very quick, easy mm, boom, you have to suspend disbelief when you watch movies. That one, the suspension breaks. For, for scale, any of you professional wrestling fans, and I know some of you are because you've messaged me directly that of my listeners, and we've talked about wrestling a little As bit. Have mine. Think about... The Attitude Era, back in the day, there is a sequence of the big show trying to flip a car. And if you see some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, you will see it. it was a lot harder than what they actually showed you, like the filmed part of it. He had to rock it back and forth multiple times. He had a very difficult time trying to do it. You talking about that, that Jeep? Yes. Yeah. But Big Show is... Seven foot tall and 500 pounds. He's a big man. And you see, you, you see how difficult of a time he had doing that to a car and then go back and watch this movie to where it's like, okay, Michael's got super strength, but the super strength to just grab a car and very slowly like flip it over, it's too much. Also, this Michael uh, in this movie, while he did not talk, he was still vocal. Which is another kind of mm, thing. And he's, he's largely maskless for the v majority of the film. Yeah. yeah. He puts it on to kill somebody, though. It's like he's putting on his persona. Yeah. But So, yeah. with all that being said, as you predicted, and as I predicted, as many people predicted, the franchise needed a reboot. And they decided to do that. But they did it in a... Probably the best way they could possibly do it. Yes. They went back to the very beginning. H4O. These, Halloween 2018, and again, with my rules on spoilers, because the movie's only about four years old, we're not going to talk about the plot of it, really, outside of just the bare bones here. Halloween, the new one, begins with, it picks up where the first movie left off. She is not Michael's sister. They they play on that a little bit, like yeah, saying that, that was, it was a that rumor. Was really nice. But, uh, basically, and they got Jamie Lee Curtis to come back, and once again, now, because she's less than a month older than my mother. 
the way her hair, her glasses, and the clothes and attire she wears, it's 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 absolutely eerie. And you've both met my mother yeah. and how she looks now, and you can attest to this. It's disturbing almost how re- how similar the two of them are. I actually can't attest to that because I did meet your mother once and I did see her at your wedding, but I've seen her for like an accumulated five minutes. Well, you've had dinner with and, my mother. Yeah, yeah, I have. So, so yeah, it's... Uh, the franchise has had some ups, it's had some downs, it's taken some beatings. We've had a lot of laughs with it, which really shouldn't be the case with a horror movie. But all in all, it all started with the 1978 film. And the 1978 film, even today... Nearly 45 years later, you can watch that movie and you can still feel the same suspense, the same tension, everything. And that's that's a mark of a success. So I absolutely love the franchise, warts and all. I have my personal favorites out of the, out of the group. But I've got nothing negative to say about the original film. No, no. So... But I appreciate you guys both coming over to record this with me. I, I'm, again... You guys do not, Cal does because he was messaging me about it, but you listeners, you don't understand the pure rage that I felt in that moment to find out that after taking a near three-month hiatus, my first episode back was like that. So this one, I can tell just by watching my phone that the sound waves are being picked up that you're going to, you'll, you'll hear me talking. So I, I feel much more confident with this one. I feel honestly better about this one. One of the reasons why I wanted to go back to Halloween was because I did Halloween for my first spooky month. And while I was okay with it, there it really, I really felt like it could have been done better. I've had a year's more experience of doing the show since then. And I just I feel more better about this. So this was Halloween. And I got to be a part of it. Yes, indeed. Because me and him have talked about before that whenever he was initially last year talking about doing Halloween... I didn't know he was doing it. He thought and he was talking about Halloween type we, movies. We were at Buffalo Wild Wings, and I had stepped away very briefly, and then he just kind of mentioned like, oh, hey, I'm going to be doing uh, the Halloween franchise for my podcast, and Caleb was like, oh, I'm a fan of Halloween. Like, I'll do it with and he you. he joined me for it, and we and, did enjoy it. And they talked about it and all that kind of stuff, and then by the time I got back, they were done talking about it. I never knew the conversation happened. And then one day he texts me like after it's over with and all of that. And he says something like, uh, he's like, so Halloween went good with Caleb. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, me and Caleb talked about the Halloween franchise. I'm like, I really wish I would have known that that was happening. And he said, why? Cause he didn't know at the time how I felt about it. And I said, dude, it's my favorite horror franchise. I, so. I own all the films. I've seen them multiple times. Like, I like I, I really would have liked to have partaken in that and so yeah to to be here now a year later we're just talking about the original film but then it's like oh no let's branch out and just talk about the yeah. overall franchise and, and all that we are going to do that with the remainder of the month as well that's what I was actually segueing into I was very glad he's able to join me for this the next episode is going to be on the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise but we are going to mainly talk about the first film uh, we will also talk about the Freddy vs. Jason briefly, and we will talk for quite a while about the remake with Jackie Earl Haley. The following I week, saw that garbage in theaters. The that's a little preview. Uh, the following week, we will be talking about what did I say we were going to talk about originally? Phantasm. No, no, that's the final one. Hellraiser. 
I don't believe so. I think I want to talk about Hellraiser individually. I said Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, we're doing this. Was it Friday the 13th? I don't believe it was Friday the 13th either. I don't think it was Friday the 13th. Yeah. Um, I honestly don't remember what it was. I know I'm pumped for Phantasm. Yes. It'll be announced at a later date. It will be announced at a later date. And then the final uh, week of my spooky month will be on Phantasm, which is, in a lot of ways, a forgotten horror franchise. And I even told Cal about how the main antagonist being called the tall man, you once wanted to go for Halloween dressed as the short man. Yeah. For those of y'all listening, <laughs> Ian's about five foot seven. So, but yeah, this was uh, Halloween. Had a great time with it. Next up will be Friday the 13th. I'm looking forward to that one as well. Not Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street. I made it almost two hours without a screw up, and there it is. It's it's like a hallmark for myself. So, that being said, I'm just going to go ahead and leave it at that. Thank you guys for tuning back in. Hopefully this one goes a lot better this time around. I am Kid Kong. He is Cal the Kaiju guy. He is the beautiful Ian. We will see y'all next time. Have a good one.